This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Europe, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Chapter 19, What Will Be. It is also worth considering what on the current performance of Europe's politicians and the attitudes of its populations are more likely scenarios than the one set out in the last chapter. For instance, it would seem far more likely that rather than massive U-turns occurring, politics across Europe will instead continue in the coming decades, much as it was up until now. There has been little meaningful acknowledgement among the political class that what it has done during the decades of mass immigration is in any way regrettable. There is no evidence that they would wish to reverse that policy, and there is a great deal of evidence to suggest that they could not do so even if they wished to. The events of 2015 onwards have merely sped up a process that had long been underway. Every new migrant to Western Europe becomes harder to eject the longer they are settled, and most of us do not want to eject most or many of them in the case. But with every new arrival, the balance of Europe's future attitudes shifts. Those arriving have children who will remember their roots and are more likely than the rest of the population to oppose further restrictions on immigration. An ever larger number of people who are themselves of immigrant background will be ever less likely to support any political party proposing limits on immigration. They will feel suspicious of those parties, even where their agendas are comparatively modest. Aside from worrying for themselves, it is hard for somebody who has come to Europe from, from elsewhere to reason why people like them should not come in their wake. The line between legal and illegal immigration will continue to blur even further. So, with each passing day, it will become harder to find a large enough portion of the population opposed to mass immigration in order to push for a policy that would reverse or at least prevent the continu continuation of it. And so, in time, during the present century, in the major cities first and then across the whole countries, our societies will finally become those nations of immigrants that we pretended for a period we always were. Politicians willing to argue against such a dwindling position will continue to be deterred by the unique price they must pay to make their case. In Holland, Denmark, and other countries across Europe, politicians who oppose mass immigration and the influx of certain communities in particular exist in a state of permanent police protection change their sleeping arrangements most nights, and sometimes live on army bases. Even if someone was willing to take the risk of career-damaging name-calling, how many will continue to come forward to argue the case of the European people when such a life has become one inevitable consequence, and in a situation that will only get worse? For the time being, most politicians will continue to find the short-term benefits of being the compassionate, generous, and open to course of action to be personally preferable even if it leans, leads to long-term national problems. They will continue to believe, as they have done for decades, that it is better to put these difficult matters off so their successors have to deal with the consequences instead. So they will continue to ensure that Europe is the only place in the world that belongs to the world. It is already clear what type of society will result. By the middle of the century, while China will still probably look like China, India will probably still look like India, Russia like Russia, and Eastern Europe like Eastern Europe, Western Europe will at best resemble a large-scale version of the United Nations. Many people will welcome this, and it will have its pleasures, of course. Certainly not everything about it will be a catastrophe, 
Many people will enjoy living in such a Europe. They will continue to enjoy cheap services, at least for a time, as incomers compete with those already here to do work for less and less money. There will be an, in, an endless influx of new neighbors and new staff and many interesting conversations to be had. This place where international cities develop into something resembling international countries will be many things, but it will not be Europe anymore. Perhaps the European lifestyle, culture, and outlook will survive in small pockets. A pattern that is already underway will mean that there will be some rural areas where immigrant communities choose not to live and towards which non-immigrants retreat. Those who have the resources will, as is already the case, be able to sustain a recognizably similar lifestyle for a while longer. The less well-off will have to accept that they do not live in a place that is their home, but one, but in one that is a home for the world. Whilst incomers will be encouraged to pursue their traditions and lifestyles, Europeans whose families have been here for generations will most likely continue to be told that theirs is an oppressive and outdated tradition, even as they constitute a smaller and smaller minority of the population. This is not science fiction. This is simply what the current situation looks like in much of Western Europe and what the demographic projections show the continent's future to be. For although our societies integrated people better than some others feared, we are not after all such great melting pots that anything and anyone can be endlessly poured in with the results always coming out the same. To return to the analogy of the ship of Theseus, the ship can only be said to remain the ship if it remains recognizable. For that to happen, when the ship needs mending, it needs to be repaired using recognizable parts that fit in with the hull. But European society today is ever less recognizable, and what chances it had to sustain the hull were lost when it chose to wage a war on its own design. The pieces of the ship that were added were not carefully selected and did not fit the odd shapes. Rather, by government design and incompetence, the ship was pulled apart, and anything at all that stood in its place was crowbarred in, and still called Europe. Nonetheless, the political leadership of Europe will go around and around the same failed and contradictory ideas and repeat the same mistake, which is why the analogy presented to me in the Bundestag mattered. My German interlocutor's analogy presented Europe as a room into which a person in mortal, da mortal danger in the corridor just outside must be allowed to come in and join. Politicians from Britain and Sweden sometimes like to proclaim that our room is a large territory that we could easily concrete over in order to house the world's needy. But our societies are not like that. Any sensible policy on immigration and integration would have taken into account that although this ship of Europe may occasionally save people in distress from the seas around us, there is a point when we take too many people on board, take them on too quickly, or take on those with bad intent, a point at which we will capsize the only vessel that we, the peoples of Europe, have. During the migration crisis, it was not only open borders activists who believed that bringing the whole world on board was a sensible policy. It was members of the Greek government and of governing parties across Europe. Some believed it as ideology. Others simply could find no reasonable moral way to deny entry to the world's inhabitants. Others flailed around for an excuse. After the British vote to leave the EU, Daniel Korski, the former deputy director of David Cameron's policy unit, recalled how before the vote, Britain's European counterparts tried to persuade the country to take in more migrants, using the argument, among others, that migrants paid more in taxes than they consumed in public services. Even at this point, at the height of the crisis, 
the continent relied on old and disproven lies. What made it worse was that Korsky claimed, quote, We were never able to counter these arguments, claiming that although they looked, there was no hard evidence, end quote. The evidence, had they looked properly, was all around them. They could have gone to the schools in their local area, the A&E wards of any local hospital, and wondered how all these incomers could possibly have paid their way already. That was what the British people were wondering, only their representatives remained unbothered, incurious, or in denial. And so, the policies that had already made the native British a minority in their own capital city ineluctably sped up a change in the demographics of the entire continent. The dark specialism of the French turned out to be the dark discovery of Europe. Promised throughout their lifetimes that the changes were temporary, that the changes were not real, or that the changes did not signify anything, Europeans discovered that in the lifespan of people now alive, they would become minorities in their own countries. And it did not matter whether the country had a reputation for liberalism or a reputation for fire-breathing conservatism, the direction of travel was the same. When the Vienna Institute of Demography confirmed that by the middle of this century, a majority of Austrians under the age of 15 would be Muslims, the Austrian people were, like everybody else in Europe, simply expected to ignore or wish away their own cultural endpoint. The dark Brechtian jokes appeared after all to be true. The political elites had found their publics wanting and had solved the problem by dissolving the people and appointing another people in their place. What is more, it had all been done on the laughable presumptions that while all cultures are equal, European cultures are less equal than others, and that a person who favored the culture of Germany over that of Eritrea had, in the most gracious interpretation, an out-of-date or ill-formed opinion, and in the more common view, was simply an out-and-out racist. That all this was done in the name of a diversity that became less and less diverse by the year should have been the clearest possible warning sign. For if there was any chance at all of this working, it would be that the new Europeans from Africa or anywhere else in the world would swiftly learn to be as European or any Europeans in the past. Perhaps there has been some official nervousness about this. For some years in Britain, the annual list of most popular babies' names cited in the Office for National Statistics was a subject of contention. Again and again, variants of the name Muhammad climbed higher and higher on the lists. Officials defended their practice of listing the Mohammeds separately from the Muhammads and other variant spellings of the name. Only in 2016 did it become clear that this was immaterial because the name in all its variants had indeed become the most popular boy's name in England and Wales. At which point the official line changed to, and so what? It was implied that the Mohammeds of tomorrow will be as English or as Welsh as the Harrys or Davids of the generation before. In other words, British will remain British even when most of the men are called Mohammed, in the same way that Austria will remain Austria even when most of their men are called Mohammed. That this is unlikely hardly needs explaining. Indeed, nearly all the evidence appears to be pointing the opposite direction. Anyone in doubt about what this might simply consider the minorities within the minorities? Who, for instance, are the Muslims in Europe under the most threat? Are they the radicals? Do the Salafists and Khomeinists and Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas leaders in Europe live under any threat or ever have to worry even about their reputations? There is no evidence to suggest they do. Even groups whose graduates go on to behead Europeans are taken on their own estimation inside Europe to be human rights groups 
intent merely on tackling the injustices endemic in our racist and patriarchal society. This is why, by 2014, sorry, 15, more British Muslims were fighting for ISIS than for the British armed forces. The people who are at risk and the people who are most criticized, both from within Muslim communities in Europe and among the wider population, are in fact the people who fell hardest for the integration promises of a liberal Europe. It was not the Muslim and non-Muslim persecutors of Ayan Hirsi Ali who left the Netherlands, but Hirsi Ali herself. In 21st century Holland, she believed in the principles of the Enlightenment more than the Dutch any longer did. In Germany, it is not the Salafists who live under police protection, but their critics, like Hamad Abdel Samad, whose life is in danger simply for exercising his democratic rights in a free and secular society. And in Britain, it is not those who preach the murder of apostates to packed mosques up and down the country who draw British Muslim ire and who consequently have to be careful about their security. Instead, it is a progressive British Muslim of Pakistani heritage like Majid Nawaz, an activist and columnist, whose only mistake was in believing Britain when it presented itself as a society that wanted legal equality and one law for all. In France, a writer of Algerian origin, Kamal Daoud, publishes an article in Le Monde speaking frankly about the sex attacks in Cologne, and is then criticized by a cohort of sociologists, historians, and others who call him an Islamophobe and claim he is as speaking as the European far right. In every Western European country, it is the Muslims who have come here or been born here and stood up for our own ideals, including our ideals of free speech, who have been castigated by their co-religionists and carefully dropped by what was once polite European society. To say that in the long run this heralds the makings of a societal catastrophe is to understate the matter. Nothing here is possible to predict, but everywhere in Europe new things have already started to happen that signal a direction of travel. In terms of foreign policy, for years Europe has found itself incapable of expressing a coordinated strategic view. And now, thanks to our immigration policies, international politics has also become domestic politics, making Europe all but incapable of acting, acting discriminatingly on the world stage with either soft or hard power. In June 2016, when the UN accused the Eritrean government of committing crimes against humanity, thousands of Eritreans protested outside the UN building in Geneva. The Swiss people had been told, like everyone else in Europe, that here were people who had come to Switzerland because they were fleeing a government they could not live under. Yet thousands of them turned out to support the same government when someone in Europe criticized it. In 2014, a leaked report from Britain's Ministry of Defense revealed that military planners believed that an increasingly multicultural Britain and increasingly diverse nation meant that British military intervention in foreign countries was becoming impossible. The government would gain less and less public support for British troops being deployed in countries from which UK citizens or their families come. Domestically, the situation has the potential to become infinitely worse. Just one consequence of having diversity and difference rather than colorblindness and proper integration as a goal is that Europe in the 21st century is obsessed with race. Rather than diminishing, the subject grows larger by the day. It is the same story in politics, sport, and even television where not a single reality TV program seems immune from the endless obsession with race. If a non-white, non-European does well, he or she is hailed as an example to everyone 
and a model of successful integration. If that person is voted out, there is yet another political and national debate about racism and whether the individual was voted out because of their ethnicity. On a more serious level, nobody has any idea long-term of where any of this will go. For instance, in Britain, it might have been thought that since the 1980s at least, racial divisions had significantly diminished. Yet, thanks to the internationalizing of societies, nobody can predict the consequences of events happening anywhere in the world and their effect on domestic politics. For example, the Black Lives Matter movement that started in the U.S. in 2012 as a result of a number of killings by, of police or by police of unarmed black men eventually spread to Britain and other European countries. Whatever the rights and wrongs of the BLM movement in America, almost none of the circumstances for such a movement exist in Britain. In 2016, I watched a BLM protest of several thousand people marching through the center of London, giving black power salutes enchanting, among other BLM themes, the hands up, don't shoot. All the while, they were escorted along the route of their march by British police officers, who of course do not carry guns. Whatever was comedic about this evaporated weeks later, when on one of the hottest nights of the year, a large crowd chanting BLM slogans met in Hyde Park. By the end of the evening, one police officer had been stabbed and four others injured. Elsewhere, the protest spilled over into one of London's busiest streets, where a man was set upon by three men armed with a machete. It was the most serious violence in the capital for years. Nobody can have any idea where future movements of such kind will come from, but if you have many people from various parts of the whole world living in close proximity who come to entertain various degrees of resentment for each other, it is probable that various of the world's problems will descend on those communities at some time. And the world will always have problems. In the meantime, it is not certain that the European publics will forever cease to resist the issues of race. If every other group and movement in society is able to identify race and talk explicitly about it, why not the Europeans? In the same way that it is not inevitable that Europeans will forever be persuaded of the whole historical and hereditary iniquity, so it is possible that we might eventually say that racial politics cannot be for everyone else, but not for us. For the time being, it seems that things will continue as they are. Even now, the onus still remains on Europeans to solve the world's problem by bringing in people from many parts of the world. Only we, when we say enough, are castigated and then troubled by such castigation, a response that many other nations and despotisms remain happy to encourage. No Western European country has played a major role in destabilizing the regime in Syria or prolonging the ensuing civil war. But these countries ha that have done so, for instance, Qatar and the United Arab Emirates, pay no humanitarian price. Iran, whose Hezbollah, among other militias, have been fighting for Iranian interests in Syria since 2011, have even berated Europe for not doing more to help the refugees they have helped create. In September 2015, Iran's President Rouhani had the gall to lecture the Hungarian ambassador to Iran over Hungary's alleged shortcomings in the refugee crisis. Likewise, Saudi Arabia, which has spent the period since the beginning of the Syrian civil war backing its preferred sides inside the country. Not only has Saudi Arabia not made one Syrian into a Saudi citizen, it has refused to allow the use of 100,000 air-conditioned tents that are erected for only five days a year by pilgrims on the Hajj. At the height of the 2015 crisis, the single offer the, Syrian, the Saudis did make 
was to build 200 new mosques in Germany for the benefit of the country's new arrivals. Other than European goodwill continuing to be taken advantage of, one further thing can be predicted with some certainty. Public sentiment among Europeans will continue to sour. Although recent history shows that politicians certainly can go on ignoring majority public opinion for decades, it is not inevitable that such a situation will continue indefinitely. A typical poll carried out in 2014 found that a mere 11% of the British public wanted the population of their country to increase. Yet, in the two years that followed, the population grew enormously. Since 2010, the number of those in the UK who were born outside it has grown by 1.4 million. During the same period, 940,000 children born, were born in Britain to foreign-born mothers, and this is in a country that has avoided the worst consequences of the 2015 crisis. Can governments continue to dodge the consequences of their own actions or inactions? Perhaps in some countries they will. Others may cynically switch track in a second. During this crisis, I spoke with one French politician of the center-right who could hardly locate any remaining differences between his own party's immigration policies and those of the Front National. Asked how he would deal with a particular set of challenges to do with people who were already nationals, he replied with remarkable nonchalance that it would, quote, probably be necessary to change some bits of the Constitution, end quote. Perhaps cynical land grabs for political ground will become commonplace. In lieu of any more meaningful policies, German politicians have already suggested that citizens with dual nationalities who fight with foreign terrorist groups should lose their German citizenship. Denmark has introduced a law allowing authorities to seize valuables from migrants in order to cover the cost of their presence in the country. And everywhere the question of what to do with people who subvert the state is going through various iterations of debate. Currently, all countries refuse to break international law not by making people stateless, but the sense prevails that Europe is not much more than one terrorist attack away from the rules of the game changing completely. At, whip, at which point, Europeans may choose to name almost anyone as their umpire. Dangerous. Perhaps in one European country in the near future, a, par a party of the kind previously described as far-right will come to power. Perhaps a party even further to the right will then come to power at some point later. One thing is certain, which is that if the politics are to turn bad, it will be because the ideas turned increasingly bad. And if the ideas turn bad, it will be because the rhetoric became increasingly bad. In the wake of Cologne and other similar attacks, one could hear the language deteriorate around the fringes. Street movements began to talk of all arrivals into Europe as rape-fugees. Yeah. In Paris, I met an elected official who referred to all migrants as refugee hottists. God. These were unamusing as well as insulting terms for anybody who knew firsthand that at least some of the people who had come, for, who had come were fleeing rape or escaping jihad. But such deterioration of the language seems inevitable after a period of dishonesty from the other direction. If you pretend for long enough, in the face of clear evidence that all the arrivals into the continent are asylum seekers, you will eventually spawn a movement that believes none of them are. Boy who cried wolf. In some ways, it is amazing that such a movement has not kicked off in earnest already. All the while, public opinion continues to progress uneluctably in one direction. Hmm. In 2010, the German political class had worried in the loudest way that, that they could about public opinion polls showing 
47% of Germans didn't think Islam belonged in Germany. By 2015, the number of Muslims in Germany had gone up again, but so had the number of people who believed that Islam did not belong there. In 2015, that figure had risen to 60-0%. By the following year, almost two-thirds of Germans said that Islam did not belong in Germany, with only 22% of the politicians saying the religion was integral to German society. In February, February of 2017, after a new American president attempted to pass temporary travel restrictions on citizens from seven unstable Muslim-majority countries, Chatham House released a survey of European opinion. The London think tank had asked 10,000 people across 10 European countries whether they agreed or disagreed with the statement. The, with this statement, quote, all further migration from mainly Muslim countries should be stopped, end quote. The majority of the public in eight out of the ten countries surveyed, including Germany, agreed with the statement. Britain was one of only two European countries where a desire to halt all further Muslim migration into the country remained a minority opinion. In Britain, only 47% of the public agreed with the statement. Europeans are left in the position of, position of not believing sufficiently in their own story and being distrustful of their past whilst knowing that there are other stories moving in that they do not want. Everywhere, a feeling is growing of all options being closed off. All routes out seem to have been tried before and appear impossible to venture into again. Perhaps the only country in Europe that could lead the continent out of such stagnation would be Germany. Yet, even before the last century, Europeans had every reason to fear the notion of German leadership. Today, Younger Germans tend to fear this even more than their parents, and so the sense of general drift and leaderlessness continues. In the meantime, elected officials and bureaucrats continue to do everything they can to make the situation as bad as possible as fast as possible. In October of 2015, there was a public meeting in the small city of Kassel in the state of Hesse. 800 immigrants were due to arrive in the following days, and concerned citizens had a meeting to ask questions of their representatives. As a video recording of the meeting shows, citizens were calm, polite, but concerned. Then at a certain point, their district president, one Walter Lupke, calmly informs them that anybody who does not agree with the policy is free to leave Germany. You can see and hear on the tape the intake of breath, amazed laughter, hoots, and finally shouts of anger. Whole new populations are being, are being brought into their country, and they are being told that if they don't like this, then they should leave? Do no politicians in Europe realize what could happen if they continue to treat their own people, the European people, like this? Apparently not. Nor do all of the arrivals. In October of 2016, Der Freetag and Huffington Post Deutschland both published an article by an 18-year-old Syrian migrant called Aris Bako. In the piece, he complained that the migrants in Germany were fed up with the angry German people who insult and agitate and are unemployed racists. Among other imprecations, he continued, quote, We refugees do not want to live in the same country as you. You can, and I think you should, leave Germany. Germany does not suit you. Why do you live here? Look for a new home. End quote. On New Year's Eve 2016, on the first anniversary of the Cologne rape attacks, there were similar sex attacks in a number of European cities, including Innsbruck and Augsburg. Police in Cologne were heavily criticized by MPs from the SPD and Green parties, among others, for allegedly racially profiling, 
those seeking access to the city's main square in an attempt to prevent a repeat of the previous year's atrocities. One year after Germany had awoken to part of its new reality, the censors had returned and resumed control. On the same night in France, just under a thousand cars were set alight, a 17% rise on the same night one year before. The French Interior Ministry described the night as having gone off without any major incident. Day by day, the continent of Europe is not only changing, but is losing any possibility of a soft landing in response to such change. An entire political class have failed to appreciate that many of us who live in Europe love Europe that was ours. We do not want our politicians, through weakness, self-hatred, malice, tiredness, or abandonment, to change our home into an utterly different place. And while Europeans may also be endlessly compassionate, we may not be boundlessly so. The public may want many contradictory things, but they will not forgive politicians if, whether by accident or design, they change our continent completely. If they do so change it, then many of us will regret, will regret this quietly. But others will regret it less quietly. Prisoners of the past and of the present, for Europeans there finally seem to be no decent answers to the future, which is how the fatal blow will finally land. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.